Thank you, Bruce. <clears throat> we regularly take a care offering on the third Sunday of the month, uh, and Bruce usually comes and shares something about caring, and it was an appropriate thing to share this morning. We welcome the greater church community in Paris, or in Paris, that's where I'm from, in Woodstock. Here this morning, those of you who are from other churches, and we trust that you'll be blessed as we gather together. Certainly the, the Humboldt hockey team tragedy has hit everyone, and especially the hockey family, hockey community. Uh, we have a, a little bit of a personal awareness of the chaplain. He, uh, my son-in-law, Matt Martins, who pastors in Alberta, was a roommate with him in Bible college, and so knows him very well. And they were, he was the, in the wedding party for our daughter and her husband. So it kind of brings it close to home when you have those kind of connections. In the past seven weeks, I've done five funerals. Death is always around us. You were on the, on the bus, the Humboldt bus, and you were some of those who would have passed away. Where would you be? It's the most important question in life. And to have that question settled. Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant physicists of our day, died last month. Here's what he believes about life after death. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. He's one of the most intelligent men. And I ask the question, where is he now? What is he experiencing? I don't recommend you turn to this website. It's called the Happy Science website. But there are many different ideas out there about death. And this is what they say. True death does not occur when the physical body stops functioning. The moment of true death is when the silver cord connecting a physical body and a soul is severed. It usually takes place about one day after physical death and is also closely related to how quickly a person is able to accept their death. Where do souls go after death? During the first seven days or so, the soul of the deceased person usually remains close to the place where they lived and tries to follow the lifestyle that they were used to. The destination that souls take after death varies, and souls can be divided into three groups accordingly. I'm not pestering you with this. I just want you to appreciate how the non-biblical mind and, and philosophy works. First, souls that cannot begin their departure to the spirit world and become earthbound spirits or ghosts because they lived with a totally materialistic view of life and strongly denied life after death or are emotionally attached to something in this world to the point of not being able to let go. Second group, souls who fall straight to hell because living on earth, they led a life full of evil and were possessed by more than four or five hell spirits at the time of death. Three, souls that depart to the spirit world with the help of a spirit guide. The majority of people usually wander around their house during the first seven days after their physical death. But when their consciousness becomes clear enough, a spirit guide comes to help them to realize that they are already dead. The spirit guide could be, in an ordinary case, a close friend, an acquaintance, a parent, or a sibling who have died earlier. 
it sounds a little bit maybe hilarious to us, but it's very sad. It's pathetic. But a lot of people believe that. There's all kinds of beliefs that, oh, he's up in heaven riding his motorcycle, or they're playing hockey on the streets. What the Bible says about what happens at death, that's what we want to look this, at this morning, and we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5. So in this section, uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, this is the second of two letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth, and they were writ written approximately 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And both are written to inform and correct this first-generation church. They were like, they were like, had no history of Christianity, and they're living in Greece. And Paul wrote to inform them about God's truth about many topics and many of the things they'd asked about, and he writes to correct wrong beliefs and wrong behaviors. And he contrasts this life with the next life. And he takes great encouragement in knowing that this life is going to give way to a better life. And so it motivated Paul to keep on living for the Lord and serving him, though it meant many hardships and challenges and sacrifices. So this passage we're going to read describes what we can look forward to when we die. And it's all because of the resurrection. So at the end of chapter 4, picking up at verse 13, Paul says, It is written, quote, I believe, therefore I have spoken, end of quote. With the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you, believers, in his presence. All this is for your benefit, and verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord so that so we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Let's talk to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revealed word of God. 
and this picture and this truth about what happens the moment we die. We ask that you would help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to have the confidence that your word gives us today. For Jesus' sake, amen. So what happens the moment we die, and what is it like after we die? I'm going to do some broad strokes, so it won't, won't get all the details this morning, and you may have more questions than answers when you leave, but seek them in God's word, and it helps us to, to, to understand more as we have to do our own searching. So the Apostle Paul begins with this answer of absolute belief and confidence what he's about to say. He starts out by saying, we know, we are absolutely sure. There was no doubt in his mind about what he was going to talk about, about life after death. And he's writing this so that you and I can also say, we know. It's our conviction. We're sure. So there's four things I want to pick out from this passage as we move through it. The first one is, obviously, we leave our earthly body. And I want to talk about that a little bit. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. So our physical body is our temporary place of residence on earth. You know, it's where we live and we, that residence moves around and we go with it. Our body is just the house that, that we move about and live in. It's our earthly tent, as some would say, or our tent house. And to be at home in the body, as Paul will contrast in verses 6 and 7, to be at home in the body is to be living. To be absent from the body is what happens when we die. So the body that you and I live in is not intended to be a permanent body, a residence or address that we'll live in forever in the, in the way it is now. It's only for now. It's not a perfect one. And it breaks down over time. And per, Paul had talked about this earlier in verse four, uh, 7 of chapter 4. He says, we are body is jars of clay. That's what we are. Our physical being is a body of clay. And that was a phrase in the, in the language of his day for pottery that had imperfections, or in our terminology, seconds. So in reality, to our final body, our resurrected body, this, we're just walking about in seconds. They're imperfects. And Paul says that our bodies are wasting away in, in verse 16 of chapter 4. Even though our inward man is developing, our outward man, our house is wasting away. And we live in a body that's dying, began on the day we were born. Why is that? Well, it depends what our worldview is. And the biblical view is that our body, our total being, body and spirit, has been deeply affected by our first parents and what they did and didn't do in that perfect place in the Garden of Eden. The process of physical death is embedded in our DNA. And the reason we die goes all the way back to our original parents in the Garden of Eden. And what they did there had consequences for everyone who followed. 
right down to you and me and going forward. And when they disobeyed God's orders to, to obey him without reservation, to not take of that one place in the garden, that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they refused to follow God's orders, they opened the door for sin and its power to infect every person. And so Paul says in Romans 5.12, By one man, sin entered the world and death passed upon all, for all have sinned. So that sentence of death was passed on to everyone born after them. Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death or separation from God when they chose to go their own way. And they ended up with this sin nature that we inherit. And that's what we begin life with. You know, we are cute little babies, but we're sinners, potentially. We have sin nature. And we just evidence that as we begin to live and grow and do our own thing. We're born in a state of spiritual death. It's like spiritually we're laying in a spiritual grave. To the Ephesians in chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were, were by nature the object of God's wrath. And you lived in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. That's our natural spiritual identity. That's how we begin life. And our soul is separated from God's eternal life. Death means separation. It doesn't mean non-existence. So when we use that term, we're talking about separation. And what do we do? We instinctively live out that lifestyle in the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk. And that has been, and it continues today, to be the root of all the problems and misery and suffering in the world. That may sound to be oversimplistic, but that's the root. That's the very bottom of the taproot of what's happening in the world. The prophet Isaiah spelled this out very graphically in chapter 53 when he says, we're all like sheep, and we just go our own way. We've gone astray, and we just do our own thing. We're sinners who simply do our own thing instead of submitting ourselves to the great shepherd and his way of life. So that's the bad news. But the good news is God's not willing to leave things the way they are. And that's why Jesus left heaven and came into the world to seek out and save us from this curse of sin and spiritual and physical death. He came on a rescue mission, a rescue mission that involved him laying down his life as, our, as a ransom payment for us. And the moment we call upon the Lord to save us, we are instantly raised up from our spiritual death, from our separation from God, from our spiritual grave, and we receive God's spiritual life, and we have a spiritual union with Jesus that lasts forever. But God also wants to rescue us from the death of our physical body. And when a body is laid in the grave, and I've stood beside for committals, I say, this is just for now. We are laying this body to rest just for now. The first step is to free us from our earthly body or tent. So death has a way of opening us to leave this body of death behind. But not for good. The Apostle Paul talked about his, his death as a departure. He said, in sitting in prison, 
I know I'm just about ready to die. My departure is at hand. And that's, that's true of all of us, whether we're followers of Christ or not. There's a departure coming. And everyone has the same passageway from their body. We're, we're all living in the departure lounge of life. And we're just waiting for our name to be called. You ever fallen on standby, you know what it's like. You just never know that it's going to be called. And we're going to be called. So what happens at the moment of death? Our dead body is described in scripture as being in a state of rest or sleep. Waiting for a future awakening. Uh, David Jeremiah calls this a soft term for death. They were asleep in Jesus. It's a very comforting term for, for believers. In the New Testament, this word to fall asleep comes from the same root word that means to lie down. So we lay the body down to rest. Jesus used the language of sleep when he told his disciples that his friend Lazarus had died. And they said, well, let's go and wake him. And he wanted to make sure he was dead, but he meant it was just asleep for now. And Paul refers to believers who have died and those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And I want to read from 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, rather. This is a, a passage you should always have at your fingertips when you're talking about what happens and what will happen to you as a believer. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or who grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He uses that terminology, the resting and I believe that refers to the body because he's bringing our spirits with him. So he has to be referring to the body. So this is body sleep, not soul sleep, as some believe. And we later see that the soul, the soul sleep is, that the soul rather is very much alive when it leaves the body. So death is the separation point for our soul and our body. And if you know that gospel song, I'll fly away, it kind of reflects that. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Like that. So picture standing around the body of a person who has just died. The person has left. It's an empty, vacated tent house. The very instant we die, we leave our body behind. And every person, whether they're a believer or not, goes somewhere. So the second thing we look at is we go to our temporary destiny. And I emphasize temporary destiny. Again, Paul was talking about if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven. So this passage is talking about believers who have died. They are those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior in this life and have fallen asleep in Jesus. And Remember, Paul is writing to the believers in the city of Corinth. So when he says we, he's talking about himself and those believers. 
So what happens? Well, believers go to their temporary place, and that's with God. We move into our place with God. We, we have an eternal house in heaven. So there's a question here. Uh, is Paul talking about our pre-resurrection house in heaven? Or is he looking ahead to our resurrected body or house? And there are different beliefs on this. This can refer to our future immortality or our future glorified body. So John Calvin says this, in whichever of these senses it is taken, it will not be unsuitable, though I prefer to understand it as meaning that the blessed condition of the soul after death is the commencement of this building and the glory of the final resurrection is the consummation of it. The point is, we're not floating around in some undefined ghost-like state. Our soul is clothed in some form of a spiritual body until the resurrection of our physical body. Verses 5 and 6 reflect that. Uh, he talks about the body. Um, well, let's look at verse 3. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent on earth, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we'll leave that with you to think about. Jesus used a life and death story to criticize the materialistic, money-hungry, loving relig religious leaders of the day. And they loved to have money and they they would even rob widows and so on to make themselves more uh, profitable. And Jesus talks to them, and he rebukes them, and this is, account is in Luke chapter 16. And he's going to talk about why it matters, about what's important to you in life. So in verse 14 of Luke 16, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So then he talks about the story. There was a rich man who had dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar man named Lazarus, covered with stores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the, the uh, poor man's sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to Father Abraham, A pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. So Jesus used a life and death story because he wanted to drive home to the hearts and minds of these religious leaders that things, if you live just for things in this life, if that's your God, you're going to lose out in the next life. And that's a reversal of their life experience. So this depicted their contrasting rewards and warn them about their arrogant and self-indulgent values and lifestyle. Now, Jesus was not necessarily 
teaching about the actual and all the details of life after death. Some commentators suggest Jesus was using the Jewish belief of the day about two separate holding places for souls when they die. One for the righteous, one for the unrighteous. And that those in those different places could see each other and interact with each other, uh, could call out. Now, this idea does not stand up with New Testament teaching. Jesus did talk about a real paradise when he promised the repentant thief on the cross that he would go to be with him in paradise that very day. And Paul talked about a vision in which he was caught up to the third heaven or, the, or paradise in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus said he's preparing a place for us in heaven with the Father. And he said that even though we die, we live as a person, as a soul. So Paul states that when we leave our body, we are absent from our tent house and we are at home with the Lord. He said that he preferred to go and be with Christ, which is much better than staying on earth. And he says that God, in Thessalonians, as we read, God's going to bring with him the souls of those who've fallen asleep in Jesus to reunite them with their body, their resurrected body. So that means those believers are in heaven now and Jesus will bring with them those who are in heaven and they'll be reunited with their body. So you and I, as God's people, have a joyful hope about going to our forever life in the presence of God. We're always confident, which really means literally we have good cheer. We have joy. This is the interim destiny for the followers of Jesus Christ. Author Randy Alcorn calls this our present heaven, and the new heavens and earth is our permanent heaven that the book of Revelation talks about in the last two chapters. Now, maybe that's a new thought to you, but going to be with Jesus before we are in our resurrected body is our interim, you know, our interim heaven, our interim life. But what about those who do not believe in Jesus and who do not submit to him in this life? They have no such joy. It's not a better place. Because unbelievers, we understand, go to their temporary place, which is away from God. Wherever that is, it's away from God. It's not in his presence. This is the place where the soul or the spirit of the unbelieving person goes. There's not a lot of said in scripture about where this place is. It's definitely not where believing people go, and it's definitely not enjoyable, and it's not the location of their final destiny. That's going to be in the lake of fire. In the account of Jesus' story of the rich man who died, Jesus said that he, he was in hell, he was in torment. Now that word, in some of your translations, the ESV and, and, and the New American will say Hades, which was the term for the place of departed spirits, the intermediate condition of the dead between death and the final judgment. This is the place where, that is away from God's presence. It's constant suffering, we understand. The Apostle Peter says that when Jesus died, 
Here's something very interesting. When he died, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who had rejected God during the days that Noah was building the ark. That's in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, if you want to note that and look at that. The spirits of those who had lived and died long ago were being held in confinement away from God's presence. So that is the stark destiny of anyone who refuses to repent and turn to Jesus to save them. And that destiny is settled in this life. It is an everlasting existence far away from God. And the scriptures do not indicate another opportunity to change a person's mind and belief after they die. And I say that with with gentleness. It's a harsh reality, but we can only say that gently because it is not pleasant. And if you have loved ones who are not believers and perhaps may have died, it gives you mixed emotions. This life is the only life, the only chance to, sp- to choose to spend eternity with God. And we only have today. We never have tomorrow. We can only count on today. Not only do we go to our, our destiny when we die, we experience that destiny in a personal way, every day, forever. So what the, the apostle writes, believers live, because they are present with the Lord, believers live in the light of God's presence. Paul says it means that we are at home with the Lord. This is not home. This world is not home. It's temporary. It's the first stage of forever but home is with the Lord. What's it going to be like to be at home with the Lord in heaven? Well, we tend to transfer our life on earth to our life after we die. But scripture is silent about many things that people assume or imagine. The Jewish leaders and teachers of Jesus' day tried to make Jesus look bad by asking him this question. Uh, so they brought up this scenario of this woman, and following the Jewish law, she ended up marrying and becoming a widow seven times with seven brothers. Not her brothers, seven men. It's in Matthew chapter 12. So they said, well, in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to if she's had five husbands five legitimate husbands. And Jesus said, you don't understand the scriptures. First of all, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Here's his answer. When the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. You know, heaven is primarily about being with the Lord and worshiping him and serving him. It's not so much about us and what we might be doing or what our relationship might be in the next life with people. And these hymn writers have it right with songs like, when we all get to heaven, uh, what a, a joyful time that will be, and face to face with Christ my Savior. Those are the kind of thoughts 
that we're, we need to be focusing on. We're going to be with Jesus. That's the primary focus. The book of Revelation gives us a peek into what it's like to be in God's presence. I'm looking at Revelation 4, the chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, 1 to 3. After I looked, and there opened before me a door, standing open in heaven, and a voice I had first heard coming to me and saying, Come up, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And he goes on to describe this. And then coming down to verse 11. These people are expressing their worship to God. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And chapter 5, verse 11. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's what it's going to be like. Everything is perfect in the eternal state. But for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, there's a terrible reality. Because they live in the darkness of God's absence. The Apostle John wrote, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And Jesus spoke of the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now Jesus went to the cross and endured all of that for us, so we would not have to endure that. When he died on the cross, he took, experienced the separation from God and God's wrath upon him. And we know a little sense of what it's like because in those hours of, of solid blackness at, at, the, at the midday, at the end of his hanging on the cross, he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means to be separated from God. He is absent. Absent. The book of Revelation describes the future eternal torment and judgment that awaits Satan and his fallen angels, as well as people who will join them. And you can read about that in Revelation 20. Every one of us will experience living in the presence of God or in the absence of God. That's what we look at. That's our destiny. We either choose to live and experience the presence of God forever, or we choose, we don't choose, and we end up living in the absence of God forever. And everyone who dies, everyone who dies, righteous and unrighteous, are waiting for a supernatural event that will reunite their soul with their resurrected body. And that's what we look forward to. We wait for that resurrection day. We, and we know if our earthly tent 
is destroyed. We have a building with, with God. And in verse 6, Therefore we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would rather to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so there's going to be that day when the bodies of believers will be resurrected. And that will be our permanent dwelling for our soul. God's purpose is to restore our original mortal body to an immortal one. The, the one that's subject to death going to be freed from that. This will complete our full adoption as the sons of God. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 to 23, Paul talks about the whole creation is under this, this uh, curse that it came when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And the whole of creation has been affected and there's coming a day and they're longing for that day to be freed. And that's going to come when the full adoption of sons happens, and that is, Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. Our soul has been redeemed. He's talking about the redemption of our bodies when God rescues our earthly bodies from the curse of the fall. And that's when our bodies will be rescued and delivered from the curse of sin and all of the things that affect our earthly bodies, disease and death. And the Revelation paints a picture of our perfection and beauty that we're going to enjoy in the eternal state. So it's a supernatural raising from the grave, and the Thessalonian passage talks about it. So he's talking about Christians at this point. The bodies of believers will be resurrected. And he said, for the trumpet of God will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And he said, I don't want you to worry about believers who have died and their bodies are in the grave. If you're living at that time, you're not going to go ahead of them and they're going to miss out. But the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, the dead bodies be raised up and their spirits reunited as Jesus brings it with them. And those who are living at the time will have their bodies transformed into resurrection bodies and they will all rise, we will all rise to meet the Lord and be with him forever. So that's what we look forward to. It's a supernatural event. It's, it's an instantaneous event. There's more than one res resurrection that you'll find in the scriptures. This is the first resurrection. Christ was the first, ours is the second. It will be a climactic moment when God wakes up sleeping bodies in whatever form they've been buried. Just like he called to Lazarus four days in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walked out. That's what we're waiting for. It's going to happen in God's chosen time. It's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. It's possible to happen at any time. So that's, that's the good news for those who are followers of Christ. But what about the bodies of non-believers? They've chosen not to trust Christ as their Savior. Well, they're going to be raised up too. 
but it will be separate from and at a later time in the resurrection of believers. Jesus spoke of this general re resurrection at the en end of human history. In John chapter 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, A time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear God's voice and will come out for judgment. The, this end time resurrection is described in Revelation 20, and I'm going to read a few verses, 20, verse 11, to give us that sense of what that future is like. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. So in their resurrected bodies, they are standing before God for judgment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a pretty picture. And it's a sobering reality for those who do not choose to put their faith in Jesus. It makes this life really matter after we die. This life is a preparation for the next life. And God intends that we invest this life in ways that will bring a great return in eternity. And Paul concludes this section with the primary goal of living for the approval of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. He says, so in view of all of this, we're going to leave our body, be absent from it, and be present with the Lord. And he was not speaking too much of the resurrection at this point. He says, so, knowing that this is going to happen, that we're going to go and be with the Lord, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all, as believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You know, our human instinct in life is to focus on the outward person. We do that every morning. We stand before the mirror, and we try to make the outward person look good. the tent house, which is only temporary and an earthly dwelling. Now, I don't mean we disregard that, you know, just not make ourselves look attractive. But we have to focus on something else. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks writes this. He says, we live in a society that encourages us to think about how to have a great career, but leaves us inarticulate about how to cultivate the inner life. The competition to succeed and win admiration is so fierce, it becomes all-consuming. The consumer marketplace encourages us to live utilitarian calculus, to satisfy our desires and lose sight of the moral stakes involved in everyday decisions. 
It goes on, the noise of fast and shallow communication makes it harder to hear the quieter sounds that emanate from the depths. We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skills required for success, but that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character, end of quote. The Apostle Paul recognized that this outward man, this tent, was slowly fading away. And so he lived out his life in ministry in view of this future accountability to the Lord about what was on the inside, the inner man. So it matters how we live in this life because we're going to answer for it as believers on that day. But what we look forward to, the moment we die, is expressed in one verse of a song written by Don Wurtzen in 1971. And you may have heard this uh, quoted, talking about a person who has died, or the moment we die. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. That's joy. That's why Paul could say, I am absolutely sure, I have full joy that when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. And that, that joy has been my strength, part of my strength, and my family's strength in the passing of Elva just three months ago uh, on Friday. Or her funeral was three months ago on Friday. And that's been a source of comfort to know that she's okay. And that was what we look forward to as we were on the journey of knowing that that death was coming. And I hope that can be your joy. But to make it your joy, you need to have Jesus as your Savior. For that is the decision we must make. And I pray that, that you will, when you leave this body, you'll be present with the Lord. Let me pray with you. Our Father, this is your word. We thank you and we submit to it. We believe it. And this morning, we come to affirm our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior. And I pray, Father, that each one of us will make sure that we have eternal life through Jesus, who is the, the way, the truth, and the life by whom we come to the Father in heaven. Thank you for the hope and the joy of what a day it will be when we step into your presence as we leave this life. Thank you for that hope. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.